Have you ever recited, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Dave Wurtzen has been exposing for us what the Bible actually means when it talks about this coming of God's kingdom. Let's join Dave as he summarizes where we have been in this discussion of the kingdom and moves on to declare why he believes Jesus is the only one who deserves to be hailed as the ultimate king of the universe. What we've been trying to do is to understand that when we pray and we ask the Lord, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're trying to understand when we pray like that, that those are not just words, but they speak about one of the most glorious expectations and promises that we would ever have. Why is that promise important? Because right now, some of our lives are threatened. Some of you have gotten news this week. And all of a sudden, these promises in the Bible about a world where there'll be no more sickness, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more crying, suddenly those promises that sometimes when we're young and we think that this life is truly the kingdom and it's going to go on forever and ever, you know, those things in the Bible that talk about this new heaven, this new earth, and what's going to come and how things aren't yet the way they're supposed to be, when we're young, sometimes we can feel like, well, you know, that's not so important. But then all of a sudden reality strikes and we get some threatening news and all of a sudden those promises of the Bible are very, very important. What we'd like to do today is we'd like to go on from where we left off and what we did was begin to talk about the clues. We talked about the fact that the Old Testament doesn't really present like the Encyclopedia Britannica where you look up Jesus Christ, Messiah, and you look up in the Encyclopedia Britannica and it gives all the things, his birth, his career, all of that, all in one place, and it's all nailed down. Instead, it's done in a much more literary way, in a much more mysterious way in some ways, because it's kind of like a mystery story. As you're studying the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, by the Lord God, as God breathes through them, start to get clues about the coming deliverer, the one that's going to take us back to the Garden of Eden. And one of the glitches in some of the clues that they're getting is that on one hand, there's a great deliverer that's going to come, and yet he has a, an obscure beginning. He's really not recognized by his people. He ultimately is rejected by his people, and then he's cut off. And there's this picture of this suffering Messiah. Then we turn the other hand, and we have the presentation of another Messiah in the Old Testament Scripture who's a great conqueror. He's like a great general. And what the Old Testament prophets wrestled with and what the Old Testament people wrestled with was this conflict between the suffering Messiah and the glorified Messiah. What we'd like to do today is we'd like to lay some of those pictures side by side. And I want to begin by talking about the Messiah's first coming. And what I'd like to do is to bring together the clues from the Old Testament that talk about this suffering first coming of the Messiah. Why is this important? Because we need to ask ourselves, why should we on Palm Sunday bow before Jesus Christ as the King? Why don't we worship Buddha? There's a new Hollywood flick that just came out that talks about life after death. And in essence, it develops like a Buddhist idea of life after death and some of the Hindu ideas of reincarnation, that you go into a place and if you did well enough in, in this earthly life, then you go on to the next level of existence. If you didn't do well enough, then you're going to have to go back and try again. And you have some basic principles of reincarnation and some of the Eastern ideas. And you say, well, is that just a story, uh, just a flick that people watch for entertainment? Yes and no. It shows that there's a tremendous invasion from the East. 
There was a day in the United States of America where the entire culture would say, yes, I believe, at least intellectually, that Jesus is the king. Those days are passing. The days that you're going to live in are going to be a day where religion's going to be a mixed bag. There's going to be tremendous calls for everyone just to tolerate everyone else and everyone to say that it's all just the same thing. And basically, all we want to try to do is just live a good life and to try to do the best we can because, after all, we might be recycled. We don't need to worry about heaven or hell. There's really no God in heaven that really reveals specific details to us. And so let's be very tolerant and very open-minded about religion. Those days are already here. You're going to have to decide whether you bow before Jesus and say, Hail the King, the one who's truly come in the name of the Lord, or else you're just going to join the mass of people that say just everything's up for grabs. You can believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe. Now the result of being here this morning, my purpose, and I'll just state it right up front, is that I believe that God's revelation in the scripture nails the case down that there's only one deliverer. There's only one anointed one that's come into the world. When I walk into your hospital room and you've just gotten some terrible news that says life could be short, I want you to know this morning that we have an objective revelation from Scripture that says, because of Jesus, we're going to cry now, but ultimately it's going to be okay. And if ever there was a time when God's people needed to understand that there's an objective revelation from God, it's today. So what we'd like to do is look, first of all, at what the Old Testament said, the clues the Old Testament gave us about the first coming of this Messiah. We began by looking at his birth. We learned from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13, that he would be born of a virgin. We talked very honestly about how Isaiah presented Makar, Shalal, Hashbaz, quick to the plunder, quick to the spoil, who was Isaiah's child, but it also predicted another child that would be far greater than Isaiah's child, a child that would be the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God, according to Isaiah chapter 9. And we talked about how the Old Testament prophet Isaiah gave a clue. There's going to be a great child born who will be God among us, Emmanuel, God with us, and he will be born when the Greek translation, that passage comes down to us, it's a virgin child. A virgin gives birth to the child. And so we have the first clue. The Messiah will be born of a virgin. Now, where is the Messiah going to be born? Turn your Bibles to Micah chapter 5, the verse that you all know well, but let's look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You can get another clue that the Old Testament prophets. Micah was a prophet contemporary with Isaiah. He lived in the same time, and if, just to get the period of time in history, it was while the Assyrians were knocking on the door, getting ready to conquer the northern kingdom. And Micah was running to the people that were going to, going to face these tremendous invasions from Assyria. And Micah, in chapters 1 through 4, gives a lot of explanations about why this Assyrian invasion is coming down. In fact, at the very end of chapter 4, he talks about the devastation that will come. He talks about the Assyrians and their destruction. But in verse 5, he says this. Chapter 5, verse 1, I mean, Marshal your troops, a city of troops. For a siege is laid against you. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. That was the northern kings of Israel that were struck. And the Assyrian rulers did a lot more than strike them on the cheek. They struck their heads off and they took them into captivity. Now in the midst of this Assyrian devastation, verse 2 comes as a light that shines in the midst of this battlefield of destruction. And it makes a promise. 
But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Bethlehem is not an important city. Even today, it's not an important city. It's like a suburb of the city of Jerusalem. In this day, it was less important. It was just a humble city. Its only claim to fame was that it was where the son of David, David, was born. But you, Bethlehem, the house of bread, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler of Israel. So the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. The ruler of Israel will be born in Bethlehem. But look what it says. His origins are from of old, from ancient times. So we have this strange mystery. We have a child that's going to be born in Bethlehem, and yet his origins are from of old. It's a very strange kind of a clue. He'll be born in Bethlehem, but this baby that's born in Bethlehem, that will not be his beginning point. I was born in 1949. That was my beginning point. I can't say my origins were from of old. They were from 1949. That's it. But this baby, and that's the way all of it is for you, whether it's 1960 or 1970 or whenever you were born, your origins are not from of old. This baby's origins are from of old. In fact, the Hebrew is an implication even onto the forever, even onto the eternal time. That's why Jesus Christ in John chapter 8 said this, Before Abraham was, I, my origins are from of old, from eternity. And so we have the Messiah is going to be someone who had a pre-existence. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. So Micah gives us another clue. Isaiah, he's born of a virgin. Micah, he's born in the city of Bethlehem. And when you open up the gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke, that talk about these events of the virgin birth, they go out of their way to show you all the way that the sovereign hand of God moved to bring the Messiah into the world in Bethlehem. Where was Mary, for example, when the angel appeared to her? Tell me, what city was she in? Bethlehem? Jerusalem? No, she was on the other side of the tracks, up there in the north in Galilee, in the city, kind of a Roman garrison town of... Nazareth. It was the scandal all the way through Jesus' ministry because a lot of people thought he was from Nazareth. And he was born in Nazareth instead of being born where everyone knew the Messiah needed to be born. So Luke is very careful and Matthew is very careful to show us how God worked the events to cause the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. There's the reason. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. The scripture also goes on to give some more clues. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Tell us a little bit more about this first coming of the Messiah. And by the way, we'll help you as you're reading the prophets for you to understand that like those mountaintops that I told you last week, the Old Testament prophets would lay overlaying one upon the other the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming. They kind of mesh those two comings. Many times it's hard to separate them out. But Isaiah 53 turns out to be talking about the first coming of the Messiah. This whole passage from Isaiah 52 at the end of the chapter in verse 13 all the way through the section of Isaiah 53, it pictures a Jew that's looking back upon the career of the Messiah. And this Jewish person is contemplating why was it that we rejected him? Why was it that we didn't understand who he was? And you'll understand this portion of scripture if you think about it 
as being a Jewish person that's contemplating the life of this suffering servant, as if it's already taken place. But incredibly, Isaiah chapter 53 was written 700 years before Christ came because Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah that I just told you about in Micah 5.2 that said the Messiah would be born at Bethlehem. Micah and Isaiah probably knew one another. They were living and ministering in the same area, in the area of Judah. Now, even if you follow the liberal schools, which I don't, but even if you're a critical scholar, you can't move Isaiah much farther than, say, 300 B.C. So even if you're a liberal, you can't date this passage much beyond 300 B.C. You say, why is that? Because the Greek translation of this book was put out among all the Jews of Alexandria about 200 B.C. And this was already canonical scripture. So whatever theory you hold, you can't move this into the first century. It's got to be centuries before Jesus came to the world. Notice what it said. It's humble origin. Look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. In other words, he kind of came from an unexpected place, an unexpected source. He didn't come riding into Jerusalem with his chariots. Instead, he grew up on the other side of, of the tracks. He was humble in his origin. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, he came just like most of us. See, the truth of the matter is that every once in a while there's someone that comes in, you know, some guy walks in and he's six foot four and he looks like he walked right off, you know, a, a movie magazine cover and everybody's eyes are attracted. Wow, or a girl does that. Most of us are just plain what? Plain vanilla. Most of us are just people. And I'm thankful that the Lord created us because we would have all made everyone look exactly the same, a perfect ten, and life would really get very boring because there would be no creativity. But just look around this room at all the different pieces of humanity that are around us. And most of us don't have regal majesty or glory. Isn't it great that the Messiah came and he had a humble origin? He didn't look especially unique. He didn't come in all of his blazing glory. He was just a common, everyday, ordinary man. You know why? Because God wants to identify with you and with me as common, everyday, ordinary people. And so the Messiah grew up without any majesty, no special regal presence. It wasn't like Jesus of Nazareth where he never blinked his eyes. He kind of floated about six inches over the ground. Jesus was a man that when he walked among men, like when he went to the marriage of Canaan of Galilee, everyone looked upon him as just one of the people that came. And it tells us in Isaiah, he said, the suffering servant, the first time the Messiah came, it would be a humble servant that people didn't really recognize as being especially unique or especially powerful. It talks about his miraculous power, however. Isaiah chapter 35. Turn back in the book of Isaiah to chapter 35. It tells us that this Messiah, though he's humble in his origins, this Messiah is going to give proof of his heavenly origin, his origins from eternity. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, writes some encouragement to God's people of Israel. Once again, the same people that were facing the Assyrian invasion. Look at verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Have any of you had weak knees? Some of the teenagers that went skiing probably had weak knees. When you got on top of a black slope that looked like it was just straight down, your knees became weak and you started wheezing in fear. It says here that strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. 
Say to those with fearful hearts, maybe there's some of those that are here today, the truth of the matter is that deep in your heart, your heart's afraid. Fear is tough to deal with. And this passage is coming to us and it's saying, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Gazanin says this, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now, how will we recognize him? It says, then will the eyes of the blind be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shall shout for joy. Now, here's some very concrete, objective evidence of the Messiah. He will be able to give sight to the blind. Can you think of anyone that's ever lived in human history that could take someone that was born blind, not in a big healing service where there's a lot of emotion that's cranked up, but just meeting a blind man along the side of the road. For example, like when Jesus walked into Jericho and blind Bartimaeus was there just before he went to the triumphal entry. And blind Bartimaeus hollered out with his fellow blind man, please, son of David, have mercy upon us. He said, please see us. And everyone's telling him, would you be quiet, Bartimaeus? And Bartimaeus realized, man, this is my one big chance. This is my one chance to see. And he hollers out, oh, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice he knows who he is, the son of David, the Messiah. And Jesus comes over and what happens? A man who was born blind can suddenly see. Why? Because Isaiah 35 said the Messiah would give sight to the blind. A lame person that never walked, the crippled person. And Jesus was able to touch them. In Capernaum, it says they brought his sick to him all day long. In the early chapters of Mark, Mark chapter 3, it says all day long they brought the sick people to Jesus and the lame were able to leap and walk. Because the Messiah was going to be able to give weak legs strength. Deaf people that could never hear. Mary wishes the Messiah would touch my ears many times. So the deaf people would be able to hear. Husbands, do you want to identify with any of that? It's hard to figure out whether it's a mental problem or a physical problem, right? But the Messiah is going to take care of that. In heaven, I'll have no excuse because the Messiah is going to cause deaf ears to be able to hear. Isaiah 35 laid out some very important things. The blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would walk. So whoever the Messiah is, the clue is, that he's going to be someone that has that kind of power. And what I want you to realize is that sickness is the antithesis of the kingdom of heaven. You see, when Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near, and then he was able to cause the blind to see, the deaf to be able to hear, the lame to walk, what he was saying is, I'm giving you evidence that the kingdom is among you. Because my kingdom is going to conquer physical illness and death. And that's a great, great promise. There will be no hospitals when the kingdom is come. And when Jesus was here, because the kingdom is intimately related to his presence, the king is the kingdom. And when he was among us, when he lived on the earth, his kingdom was here. And therefore, there was that kind of healing, that kind of miraculous deliverance from the effects that sin produces. Not personal sin, but the sin of the race that produces death and sickness and hurt. The clue from the Old Testament was that the Messiah would be able to heal the blind and give sight to them, cause the deaf to be able to hear and the lame to walk. What about his presentation? Let's look at Zechariah chapter 9, another prophet. I'm sure you had your quiet time this morning in Zechariah.
chapter 9. Maybe some of these Old Testament prophets will come alive for you, especially if you keep in mind this juxtaposition between judgment because of their sin and then the promise of deliverance. And in the promise of deliverance, there are the two coming of the Messiah, the suffering servant Messiah and the glorified conquering Messiah. Look at Zechariah chapter 9. It says in verse 8, But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I keep watching. Zechariah gave that promise to a people that had faced devastating destruction. Now look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king. Why should they celebrate? See your king come to you, righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we have two animals involved. There's a donkey and the donkey's colt. Now, as we turn over to Luke, turn to Matthew. Let's use Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Beginning of the chapter. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there, and with her colt by her. Now, did Jesus need two animals to ride on? Was it going to be kind of like riding Roman style, like we used to do when we were kids, taking a team of horses, put one leg on one back and one leg on the other, and pray that the horses stay close enough together to not split your body in half? No. What did Zechariah predict? That the Messiah would come riding on a donkey, and the donkey would have its colt. It's right there. Now, how is the prophecy fulfilled? You think God isn't concerned about details? You think God isn't concerned about little, minute, historical realities? It tells us right here. They untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Evidently, the owner of those animals knew Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, because 70 had already gone out from the Lord just before this event, proclaiming all over Israel... The king is at hand. Repent. The kingdom is here. The king has come. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophets. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them in a very large crowd, spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, deliverance has come. Bring salvation, what Hosanna means. It means cause salvation, bring salvation. Hosanna, bring salvation, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, bring salvation. He's the highest one. Now, incredibly, and I want you to stick with me. We're going to do some math. How many of you like math? The second coming of the Messiah, when he comes in all of his glory, is not nailed down. The exact timing. Whenever someone says, you need to buy this book, because you can guarantee that during the feast of Rosh Hashanah, the Messiah will come. Don't buy that book. In fact, a guy that printed a book like that sold millions of them and probably made millions. It's a ripoff. It will every time because the scripture doesn't tell us. Jesus himself said, not even the Son of Man knows about the coming of the King the second time. So anyone that says, I know the time, or if anyone tells you this is going to be it, watch out. They're deceiving you. But you know, that wasn't so with the first coming of Christ. In fact, the Lord God of heaven nailed down the first coming of Christ precisely. 
And we're going to see how precise it was. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. And the book of Daniel presents some of the strongest prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. In Daniel 2, it talks about a stone that's cut out without hands that comes and crushes and crushes the world empires. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven and destroys all the world empires. But Daniel chapter 9 tells us another picture. It talks to us about anointed one, an anointed one that, that comes and is rejected. It talks to us about a coming Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. It tells us that it talks about a Messiah that's going to be cut off. And in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and following, it tells us exactly when this Messiah who was going to be cut off would come. What date did Daniel predict for the coming of the Messiah? Can we really nail this down from the Old Testament wise man? You will have to listen next week for the answer and this incredible verification from the prophecies of Daniel that prove that Jesus is the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. Remember to register for our podcast when you're not going to be able to join us at truthencounter.com.